Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Arraignments are when charges are formally read against a criminal and a plea is entered by the accused. God's court works much the same way, with one exception. The creator of the law is also the judge, and that changes things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect is part three of Rest Secure and is taught by lead teacher Randy Pope and covers Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Thank you for joining us today. You ever, uh, you ever morally mess up in such a way that uh, you hear a voice of sorts that says, you know, you, you really can't be a person of faith. If you've messed up like you have, how in the world can you call yourself a Christian? Or perhaps you've heard that uh, same voice suggesting from time to time, you know, when you die, you may not, you may not make the cut. Look at the way you live. You struggle. You think that you should get into heaven? Or maybe without any voice whatsoever. You find yourself living without the security in a love relationship with God that produces a, a byproduct of joy where you find daily, even though in the midst of life as it is, that, that you just can't find that joy that you're looking for in life. If that be the case, I think you're going to find as a Christian at this series is going to be very helpful where we are and where we're going, particularly today. If you're outside the faith of of Christendom, you're really trying to figure it out and understand what it means to be a believer. I think you're going to find this to be a very helpful text. I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn in the book of Romans. Romans chapter chapter 8. Our series is entitled Rest Secure. And we're using verses 31 through 39 over these weeks. I want to remind us all as I read this, this is the word of God. This is what he's given to us for life, for faith, for practice. And it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word from him. Beginning in uh, verse 31 of chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
In the previous weeks, we've been looking at reasons to rest secure. Our text is basically answering the first question, what shall we say to these things, which is referring to the book of Romans at large, but particularly chapter 8. And so he answers that question with questions that really have no answer because they're impossible. And he's making that as the point. And so the first of the reasons that we looked at was found in verse 31. God's acceptance nullifies all opposition. God before us, who can be against us? Number two, God's acceptance assumes provisional abundance. Verse 32, it reads like this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, those two weeks behind us now, and we're building on these questions. We come now to the third, and we've entitled it, God's acceptance silences every accusation. Every accusation. Verse 33, we'll read it one other time. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now, this question and the one we're going to look at next week both take us, as it were, into a courtroom of law. It's as if there is a legal process going on and God is in the midst of this thing and he wants us to get a clear picture of what reality is for those of us who are what he calls justified. Now, in order to understand this, he raises the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, now, if he were just to leave the question standing there, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, Maybe we would say, huh, about my conscience. I get charged all the time by my conscience, telling me that I'm worthless, that I'm no good, I can't be loved by God. I hear that all the time particularly some of us here who found that type of relationship with their parents. Now it reflects in God, and they say, God, you certainly can't love me. Do you? Surely you bring accusation against me, don't you? Or maybe it would be Satan. I mean, isn't he called the accuser of the brethren? Well, certainly he accuses me. There would be an answer to the question. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he adds, God is the one who justifies. And with that statement, everything changes. Everything changes. Now, the details of this we need to look at. I'm going to parrot a a, a bit from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite commentators. Uh, He has a, a great commentary in Romans. And if you want to really get into it well, read his stuff. But, um... But let's look at first God's elect. Let's break it down this way. God's elect. Interesting that it uses the term elect. Now, that's a hot term in the church today. You talk about election. Uh, People say, well, are you one of these churches that believes in predestination, election, that kind of thing? I always say, we believe that. Believe it with all our heart. How can you believe that? Because the Bible teaches it. And it does. I always tell people, don't ever say you don't believe in election because the Bible clearly says God chose, God elect, God predestines. He says it over and over. You've got to believe it. Now, how you interpret that may be a different story. 
But I'll tell you this, Christian, the way that you and I are going to interpret that is going to make all the difference in the world and how we live securely. The very critical term. We have to think of ourselves as the elect, chosen of God. You know what this is? It's a summary statement of what he said in verses 28 through 30. If you were with us in that part of this series a year or so ago, you heard us teach through the doctrines of election. And what you find out there is this foreknowledge, those, who he, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, this foreknowledge is not anything to do with kind of seeing ahead of time, uh, omniscience and that sort of thing. No. Without question, it is a choosing beforehand. I'm not going to get into the teaching of that. You can go back to the series previous, but here's the point. As we begin to see ourselves as those who have been selected and chosen and loved by God, by his grace, by his call, when we begin to understand that, oh, it does something radically different to us. He doesn't say in our text here, you know, here's the question, who will bring a charge against those who decided to follow Jesus? He doesn't say that. Not at all. You see, the problem is, We begin to think that I have decided to follow Jesus. And maybe from God's standpoint, I'm not doing it well enough. But when we begin to understand the heart of this subject matter, 28 through 30, we begin to realize God chose me at the very depth of my sin and chose to do something to me and something for me that has changed me. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's the question. Now, the second thing he says in the text, basically two things. He talks about us being the elect, and then he says, it's God who justifies. Who will successfully bring a charge against God's elect? And then he says, God is the one who justifies. Now, actually, the literal translation of that is God, the one justifying. Literally, if we wanted to interpret this text, this is what it's actually saying. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God, the one who justifies? Impossible. There is no way in this world that God, the one who has taken someone like you or like me and has chosen to do this thing called justification, Any way that God has done that in our lives, there is no way that he would turn around and then, in any form or fashion, bring a charge against us as if we're guilty. Not a way in the world that that can possibly happen. Lloyd-Jones, and this is where I like to, to bring in what he has to say, he gives four reasons, I think four great insights into the understanding of this text, what he means here. I'll put them on the board. You can see them. They build on each other, so to speak. First, man's relationship with God is a legal one. I mean, everything you see in this entire word of God is built around the concept of covenant. He has a covenant. It's a legal document of sorts. There's no written document outside the word of God. That is our document. But it's a legal document. It's based on law. Everything he deals with us is is this legal one. Number two, God himself 
has made or constructed the law which governs his relationship with man. It's not that God was given a set of laws and says, now I'll have to deal with these. No, God made the law. He constructed the law. And he says, it'll be upon this law that I'm going to build my relationship with you. It will be the way we contract to live as God and creation. Number three, God is not only the lawmaker and its administrator, he is the judge. Throughout the Bible, we see that. He, is, he, he administrates the law, certainly, but he is the judge of the same law that he has designed and created. It's like you've heard me illustrate in the Pope family. I always wanted our kids to know, Carol and I are the law makers. We make the laws. They don't make the laws. The laws weren't handed to us. We make the laws. And I always love to let them know I'm the judge. And then look, you know, dad, he's the judge of the law that dad has created. Now, they don't always agree. They come in and they say, hey, you can't do that. You bought, you bought him that and you didn't buy it for me. And I say, oh, whoa, whoa, let's go back to the law. I created it. Never did I say I can't buy something for one without buying it for all. I never said that. And so as the judge, I'm going to say, be quiet. You have no say in this. You got to live with this thing. It's going to happen. And sometimes you're going to be the beneficiary, but that's the way my law works. Carol and I agree as the lawgivers. We're going to administrate this law. That's the way it is. Number four, any charge brought against man must be brought in terms of the law and nothing else. In other words, no one, no one can bring an accusation against one of us before God and say, I don't like him. God, would you do something bad to him? Nobody can do that. You've got to do that because I don't like them. It'd be like with my, in our family. You imagine one of my children coming up to me or one of your children come up to you referring to their sibling and say, you know what? I don't like my sibling. Would you spank them? And I'm not going to spank them. Why? Because I don't like them. No, they've got to break the law to receive a spanking. We don't do that unless it is justified. You get that? And so these four points make it very, very clear. This is the way God is going to work with us. Now, if you were to look in the New English Bible and read this same text, this is how you would read it, like many of us would interpret it. It's God who pronounces acquittal. Terrible translation. Absolutely wrong interpretation. Many of us think God is the one who only forgives. As important as it is that God forgives us, it is not enough. When he uses this term justifies, he's not just talking about something that he takes away. Okay, I'm going to take away your sin. But in that term, justified, is the beautiful, glorious side of him placing upon us his own righteousness. Not just declared forgiven. Christian, you're not just forgiven. You're declared holy. You're declared righteous. 
You are declared as perfect in the sight of our creator God. Do you understand that? Seeker, do you get it that it's not, okay, I'm going to decide to follow Jesus and I'll do a better job and I'll take care and I'll be better and surely God will now say, okay, no, it's not good enough. Even if he would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he's got to place upon us a new nature of righteousness that he's given to us. A heart that says, I see you now in the righteousness of Christ. How can that happen? It's because of the the fact that God is not only the one who justifies, but he remains just when he does it. Would you read with me Romans 3 in verses 24 and 26? We read these words. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, that he might be just and, note this, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The two have to be together. And so how does that happen? He takes our sin, he imputes our sin into his own son, thus he dies on the cross, and then Christ's righteousness is in turn imputed, placed within us so that we have his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, important text here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the what? The righteousness of God in him. There it is. Justification once for all takes care of our sin. Past, hear this, past, present, future. We stand righteous. See, we could imagine a courtroom situation, maybe in this in this courtroom scenario, the one who has been charged uh, seems to now be free. It looks like any of the prosecutor's case has fallen apart. It's just, it's not going to hold water now. Looks like you're about to be freed as the one who is being charged. And all of a sudden, the prosecutor, someone said, whoa, 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 judge, one final word. I just realized something here. And then he turns to subsection so-and-so in subsection so-and-so of the annals of our laws and says, based on this technicality, I think I can charge this person here with the guilt with which he's been charged, and therefore he has to be prosecuted. And the judge says, oh, I didn't realize that. You, You got me here. I mean, based on the law, you're right. There's nothing we can do, but we have to prosecute, and now we have to deliver judgment. Folks, that'll never happen with your God. It will never happen. Once you come into his kingdom, you become a righteous person. And based on that righteousness, you will forever, regardless what you do, regardless what you say, regardless how you fall in the most immoral of way, you are forgiven. You are cleansed forever. Righteous in his sight. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? The point is, if God won't do it, then no one else can. And if they were, God's the judge, and he uses his law, and based on his law, we're free. 
Woe to the congregation that hears that message with a period right now. Because as true as everything I've said is, we have to go one step further. And so, I want to introduce to you the whole concept of this law and how God has given us a law and where we stand in relationship to that law. You know, since the charges that are leveled against us as sinners have to be in terms of the law, we have no problem because, you know what, we're no longer under law as Christians. We're not under law. We're under grace. True, true, true. We are under grace. Romans 10.4, I think, puts it as clearly as you could ask it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It is the end. However, I want you to understand this. There are three usages of this law. And so I'm going to put you into a little theology here. Three uses of the law. First, the pedagogical use of the law. Now, the, the, uh, the word uh, pedagogy, it's a, a word that talks about the function or the work of a teacher. Everything I've spoken now about how we are free from the law, we're not under the law, has to do with it as a teacher to us, as a means by which we relate in order to come into relationship with our God. It won't happen. The law is given to reveal God's righteousness to us and our own sin. We see the law. I love the illustration of, of when you raise the, 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 uh, uh, the shade in a room and, and the sunlight comes through. And all of a sudden you see particles of dust that you never saw before. There's the function of the law. Those particles are always there. We don't see it. And all of a sudden the light comes through. And we, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, the light of the law shows us our own sin as well as the righteousness of God. And it sends us running to Christ. That's why we call the law a tutor that takes us to Jesus. Very important to understand that. Christians, you and I are not under the law. That has to do with our salvation. We aren't under the law anymore. Now, if you that are outside a relationship with the Lord, you would be considered under the law of God right now not Christians. Please don't think this. Old Testament law, New Testament grace. No. Those that were true followers, not under the law. In the New Testament, those that are believers, not under the law. Old Testament, non-believers, non-followers, under the law. New Testament, it doesn't matter if you're not a believer, you're under the law. Always, we are under grace as believers in this use of the pedagogical usage. Number two usage of the law in the Bible is the civil use of the law. Civil use. This is where the Bible says, uh, don't do this, shouldn't do that. This restrains, the civil use of the law is to restrain evil through the use of punishment even, but it's to say, we're going to restrain evil. We cannot change the heart. The law will never change the heart, but it can change the behaviors of people without the heart. And so it is used in a civil way throughout Scripture, a very appropriate use of the law. The third use is what's called the moral use of the law. And the moral use of the law provides the guidance to live righteously in gratitude for the grace that's been given to us. That law, the moral law, abides forever, and we live to that law even as we would see in 1 Corinthians 9. The 21st verse reads like this. 
It says, to those who are without the law, as without law, and he's talking about how he's relating to Christians and non-Christians, but the point is that though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, referring to himself, Paul, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. You know, what he's simply saying there is the law as interpreted and applied by Christ. What he's saying is, oh, then there is a use of the law in my life. I'm not under the law, not the law as we know the law, but the law of Christ in the sense that God has interpreted his word for us and says, Christian, follow me in this way. Here is my truth. Here's what I want from you. Here's what you should do in your life as a Christian. Here's what you shouldn't do. And we have that law to live by. Some people have said to me, as a result of a message or series that I've given, I heard I, I was talking, remember, Leonce Crump. We're going to have him back here preaching, Lord willing, sometime soon. But I was meeting with Leonce. And uh, Leonce asked me, he said, he's, he called and said, can we just get together and talk about life and ministry? And we're sitting there talking, and he says, what's with some of these people, my age people, talking about himself? He said, what is it with, with so many of these people that, that think if you talk about what God says we must do and not do, they think as if we're preaching outside the story of God's grace. I said, oh, I know what you're talking about. I've had people actually say to me, don't tell us what to do and not to do. Even if you give us the gospel, I just want to hear what God's done for us. Oh, that's absolutely important. It's the primary story. But, oh, the use of God's law in a moral sense is so valuable to us. He says, now go live and obey. Live and obey. It's the two together always. People who say, you know what, I don't like doctrine. I, you know, I got my experience. I don't need doctrine. Don't give me all this doctrine. I say, oh, you don't understand, do you? You know, the devil, he can shake your experience but he can't shake the truth of God. You get that truth. You hang on to that truth. He can't shake you then. You got it then. That's the beauty of truth. I can't help but think Martin Luther. When the Reformation happened, not by his design, but by him being a tool of God to bring it about, I can't imagine the joy that he must have experienced when he first saw that light and truth. And he says, ah, I am not justified by my sanctification. I don't have to get better in order for God to love me. I am declared righteous by the work of Jesus himself. One author puts it like this. Never will there be a case before heaven's throne where God will ever consider questioning a believer's eternal state or acceptance. No prosecutor can ever be of any avail if Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, is pleading our case and God the judge has already pronounced us innocent. One other person puts it this way. God will never open a hearing in any case involving us in a cause which could bring us into eternal jeopardy. I want to bring this, wrap this up into conclusion. I had a friend who came to me, and he was so concerned because he'd been accused of something that he had not done. 
And he says, I'm not concerned about the fact that, I, that I'm guilty because I, I know I'm not. What concerns me is that there are going to be people in my realm of relationship and so forth that will never know the truth. And they're going to think that maybe I could perhaps have done that. And it concerns me that, that the truth won't really be there. You know the beauty of our relationship with God? It's not that God knows our innocence because we're not. We're not innocent at all. What he knows is our forgiveness and our righteousness. And we can stand before God and say, I'm forgiven, I'm righteous. So which would be worse? Which would you, if you had to pick one or the other, which would you pick? To be accused and not guilty or to be accused and guilty? Well, we don't have to make the choice because with our God, it's guilty but not accused. How about that, folks? Seeker, do you see why we've got something so wonderful? We don't have to make ourselves not guilty. What we do is admit our guilt and find ourselves forgiven and made righteous. It gets no better than that. Young people, all of us, but young people particularly, Boy, don't we have this concept that I got this ladder and I got to walk up this ladder. And, and the higher that I get on that ladder, the more merit that I have in the presence of God. Some people go, yeah, oh, no, 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 it's not a merit ladder at all. It's, what, it's a relationship with God. I've got to be put in a, on a new ladder. And we get on the new ladder and we think, okay, now I start climbing on the new ladder of righteousness. And now that's not, no, 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 no. You've been placed at the top of the ladder. You're at the top of his ladder. Yeah, but I'm not that spiritual. I'm not that mature. I'm not that faithful. I don't care. You're at the top of the ladder. Well, then if I am declared righteous at the top of his ladder, but in my practical righteousness, I know I am at the bottom and and I need to be faithful, more faithful and all. But explain that and help that. What makes me even want to do that? If I've been declared righteous, I'm at the top of the ladder. Why would I care? I'm free. I'm out. I can live the way I want to live. And I say, no, that tells me you're not on the ladder. When you get on the ladder, you want to get to the top of the ladder in your practical life. You want to get there. But the good news is you'll never get there. But in God's sight, you're at the top of the ladder. Why would you want to give effort and climb in the duty of faithfulness as a Christian? Because of a love relationship. It's because you appreciate the grace of God. You're overwhelmed with him. And there's been a love created in your heart that now compels you. As it says in 1 Corinthians 5, his love compels us to faithfulness. No compulsion, no heart, no effort, no desire. Maybe we're not even on that ladder. Now we want to really take a deep look. I had the opportunity to speak in a high school this last week to a bunch of students. I talked about assurance of salvation. How do you know you're a Christian? And the truth of it is, when you get on that ladder of God's righteousness placed at the top, practically speaking, though, I got a long way to change in my life. Your heart of heart's desire 
comes, I really want to get there. I may struggle and not get there like I want, but I want to get there. Do you? If you do, rejoice in this. You're at the top of the ladder. So, you blow it morally. I mean, absolutely blow it. Good news. You are forgiven and pronounced righteous if a Christian. You die. Maybe of suicide. There's no moment of repentance from sin of suicide. And you're a child of God. Where are you? Perfectly righteous before God. You die. And you're not very far along spiritually. And you die at the same moment. With someone that is a spiritual giant of all giants. And you stand before the Lord together. And the questions ask. Who's the most righteous between you? What are you going to say? Young of the faith. Equally the same. If you know the truth. Ah. Practically speaking, he lived a more righteous life, but we're both equally declared righteous in your sight. Love the same because of your goodness. Folks, that's good news. That's why we call it the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the great truth. It reminds us as a voice that screams at us to drown out all the other voices of condemnation to remember that It is you who is the judge. It is you who justifies and you use your law and we're no longer under that law. And therefore, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. And may that very truth, the reality of that drive within us a deeper desire to obey, to follow, to love. May we find our hearts so enthralled with what you've done for us that we'd want to live for you. Grant that we pray. And for all of our friends here outside a relationship with you, God, would they see now the beauty, the splendor of what is given in salvation. And may they run to your cross even now and say, please, Lord, I want to be yours. We thank you for your love. We thank you in the name of Christ, our savior. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.